I always say hockey's the one thing that I feel is the same uh, for me with legs and without. You know, you walk into a hockey rink, every hockey rink smells like a hockey rink. It's still five on five. It's still the same sheet of ice. The goal is still four by six. It's still the same rules. Obviously, it's a sled, and for me as a goalie, I'm not making kick save left and right, but it's already like I flopped and I'm just catcher blocker, catcher blocker, um, and it, I still can be competitive and, and athletic, so. Hey, how you doing? This is US Army Special Forces Captain Ben Harrow, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week we're interviewing uh, Ben Haro. He's a West Point grad, played lacrosse there, also to award number 37 like myself. Um, was a Green Beret captain. He's a double amputee above the knee, and he currently is playing club hockey or sled hockey down in D.C., my old stomping grounds too. And uh, he also plays for the Italian national team, and he's a goalie. So, Ben, you wanted to start off by just talking about what sports you played growing up? Yeah, uh so I played a lot of sports growing up. Uh, for me, I grew up on Long Island. You know, in the fall, I played soccer and, and hockey. And in the winter, I was playing basketball and hockey. And then in the spring, uh, you know, youth baseball. And it wasn't really until middle school that I got more serious in lacrosse, about uh, seventh, eighth grade. Um, and then I actually got sent away to boarding school, not because I did anything horrible. Yeah, but I was going to ask about that. No, I didn't steal a car or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, it was just an opportunity to... Uh, go to kind of a, an elite boarding school uh, down in Virginia, a place called Woodbury Forest School, and they had you know really good athletics and academics. And I, I knew even as a, a young kid in middle school, it was kind of a golden opportunity. Uh, so I took it, and that's where I got more serious in lacrosse. And obviously, there's no hockey rinks in Orange County, in the middle of Virginia. So right. that's where I got more serious into lacrosse. All right, cool. Um, what injuries did you suffer from growing up as an athlete? I had a couple of concussions just from from hockey. I got hit hard one time. Um, I know. I remember my senior year during our big soccer game versus our rival high school. Uh, I played goalie also in soccer. Uh, it was a free kick right outside of the 18, and I ran back to punch it over the crossbar and just tipped it over the bar at the last second, and then I wrapped my head on the the side post. And it just, I just remember he, like hearing and feeling this crack and just kind of seeing the, the lights go out and uh, waking up in the back of the net with uh, one of the other team's uh, strikers was, was shaking me to, to kind of wake me up. Oh, wow. And uh, definitely knocked me out for a couple seconds and uh, they, they carried me off. They had to call an ambulance to put me on a stretcher and get me out of there. Jeez. But it was just a, you know, a real bad concussion. Um, you know, ironically, I never broke a bone or had a, a major injury besides pulling a muscle in college before I stepped on a bomb. And then I go through like 40 surgeries and, and everything else. So Jeez, yeah, we're, we're going to get into that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like an insane story. Oh, cause I forgot to act or add into the intro that you're a world record holder for uh, bone lengthening. Yeah, two, two world, uh, two medical world records. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, so what sparked your interest in going to the service academies? So as a high school kid, you know, I, I knew I wanted to play Division I lacrosse. I wanted to play for a competitive program. Uh, also, I knew I kind of wanted to be part of something just bigger than myself. I didn't realize what it was, and it definitely was being in the military and, and that selfless service and, and serving my country. 
uh, it was just, it, it was a, a niche that I kind of felt, uh, you know, fit me personally. Um, and also, you know, filling out college applications as a young kid, it says, what do you want to pick as a major? All I wanted to do was play lacrosse and win a national championship and, you know, get a degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up as a junior in, in high school. So I also realized that serving a couple of years in the military is a five-year commitment no matter where you go, whichever academy, it would at least give me some good life experience and job experience. And I was always told the service academy network is is really big and very helpful, which it is. Um, so that kind of drove my, my choice to go to one of the military academies. And, and it came down to either... Navy or, or West Point. And at the end of the day, uh, West Point w recruited me more seriously and they, they showed more, more interest. So it just, that, that's yeah, how I want to go someplace where they want you. I you want to feel the love, you yeah, know? Exactly. <laughs> cool. Um, so I think it was your freshman year. That was when nine 11 happened. Yeah. So what kind of thoughts and feelings and emotions were kind of going on? Like, were you like, Oh shit. Or you're like, uh, you know, let's, let's let's do this thing. Or I think that it, as a freshman in college, I, I knew I still had four years. Um, it's not like they were just going to graduate everybody early and, and send them to right. the, the front line. But still, it was you know raising your right hand and taking the oath as a fresh as a plebe at West Point pre-war, and then being there in the fall and watching everything happen. You know, I knew it was kind of a, a, a not a special time, but an important time in our history where it's something that, you know, I lived through it and I was kind of at a very symbolic place when everything happened. I remember that Tuesday morning, I was walking to my second hour class and at every classroom at West Point, there's a TV and usually teachers have like the news playing in between the, the class change. And I was walking into the class and one of my other friends that I played lacrosse with, who's also from Long Island, we were watching this happen. And, you know, for two guys from New York, I... I said this uh, the other week at the U.S. Lacrosse um, uh, headquarters. They had a 9-11 memorial opening, and they asked me to come and speak. And I, I said this, too, where when your home country is attacked, it, it stings. But when it's your home, it, it hurts a little more, I feel like. Yeah, and, when and you're closer to exactly, the city. Exactly. You know, yeah. I, I knew two guys that it's not like I was best friends with them, but I looked up to them when, when I was a little kid. You know, one, I played, you know, I knew him from the hockey rink and I watched him play. The other guy, I was a lacrosse player. One was a firefighter. The other guy was, um, uh, was a Cantor Fitzgerald was the name of the office that pretty much got demolished. Um, he, he was a Cantor guy. Um, you know, both died in the tower. So I, I knew people. My dad worked uh, in, a, in a federal office building right around the street. So I remember that morning trying to get in touch with my dad, and I couldn't, you know, nobody knew where he was because everybody was doing that mass exodus from downtown uh, off of Manhattan. So scary stuff. Yeah, yeah. you know, it was crazy. And to, 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 to be so close to it, um, it, I knew that going to West Point, it, it all kind of made sense at that time because I, if someone's going to go, you know, not, I don't want to say revenge, but, but kind of do the job of, of finding those people that attacked us. I knew I was set up to go do that and I, I wanted to go do that. So awesome. So can you talk a little bit about that oath that you were talking about that, uh, everyone, at, I guess all the cadets at, at West Point. Yeah. So, you know, take. all the cadets at West Point and, and Air Force and Navy and all the other service academies. And it's the same oath that, uh, that kids take when they enlist in the army. And that's just that you, you swear that you'll, uh, defend and uphold the constitution. And, uh, it, you know, it's a, I probably can't recite it right now and I'm doing a horrible job, but it was so long ago, but, uh, it, it's kind of powerful though, you know, knowing that you're about to get involved with something a lot bigger than just yourself and you're going to be part of this kind of big green machine that, that, uh, that defends America. Right. Cool. Um, all right. So let's talk about your, 
your lacrosse career at West Point. And I know at one point you, you won the – I'm going to butcher this name – the Steve – Flahakis. Flahakis. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Unsung Hero Award. So I was looking up, I was trying to find something about like the meaning behind the award yeah. and like what it was all about, but I couldn't really find much. So can you kind of explain what the award is and why it means so much to you to uh, earn that? Yeah. So I think I was the, the second recipient of that award. I think uh, our t- the Army started that in 2004, I believe. And, you know, basically it is what it sounds it, it sounds like. It's the Unsung Hero Award. And I won that my senior year. So a little backstory in that, which will probably help explain that. Uh, in high school, I was a you know all-state attackman, and you know I scored goals, and I never crossed the midfield, and I loved it. And I get to college, and I was fast. So my freshman and sophomore year, I get made a midfielder, and all right, whatever. I just want to touch the field and play. And the beginning of my junior year, the coaches asked me to switch from you know midfield to defensive midi, where playing defense and just helping with transition and obviously no I can, glory exactly yeah. you know I you know I still have the green light to go to goal if there's if there's daylight and, and take it to the the net but you know transition and, and defense and I told them yeah I'll do whatever it takes for us to to win and, and I just want to play and that's what I'm here for so you know that's kind of how, how I ended up winning that award I think my senior year where I, I, I wasn't a captain but I was definitely a leader on the field and uh you know I sold out every day at practice and for every game. And, you know, even my last game, I remember versus Georgetown, uh, I was, I was pretty emotionally upset, you know, physically and emotionally, you know, I tears coming down my face. Cause I knew that was the last time I would ever touch the field as a college athlete. And, you know, it's kind of my identity at the time where that's who I was. I was a lacrosse player and I knew, you know, it wasn't like horribly distraught. I knew I was going on to bigger and better things, but still that, uh, you know, high school and college across was such a, a big part of my life. Right. So, what was the biggest obstacle transitioning what, from attack to midfield? Was it the you know an unglorified position, or <laughs> were, were you ever like you know why the hell did they do that? Or no, I, the biggest challenge probably was working on my stamina because it was just constantly running. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I you know I, I was always an athlete, and I, I, I'm my premise is I think kids should play growing up all sports. You know, I don't think that kids should focus on one sport at like at six and think that they're going to be the next Tiger Woods or the next, um, you know, Phil Sim, you know, as a, as a quarterback, I think they should play all sports because I think it transitions later on in life. And because I, I was a good all around athlete going from offense to defense, wasn't that hard of a challenge. You know, play, yeah. Playing defensive midfield, it's like playing basketball where you want to push them down the side. You don't want to let them get to their strong hand. And as long as you can run, you know, north, south, and east, west, and, and dodge, and, and give a juke and a couple of moves, and have good hand-eye coordination, you know, you'll be fine. Right. Um, did that, did that experience kind of help you out at any point in it, down in your army career? Um, like yeah. in terms of like having your position change or your role change or something like that and yeah. having to adjust? I mean, that's pretty much a day-to-day in special forces where you're living in, in the gray, and there's a lot of ambiguity, and... There's, there's not a lot of black and white, and you kind of have to make decisions on the fly, and you have to be adaptive. You have to be able to you know, react and think on your feet, and I think a lot of that there, – there's a lot of comparisons to that, especially you know, as a defensive midfielder player in lacrosse. There, there's a lot of that, I think, uh, in the special operations community in general. All right, cool. Um, what, what did you – or why did you choose the number 37? I picked 37 in high school. That was my my number when I started playing varsity lacrosse my sophomore year of high school. 
And so growing up on Long Island, I used to go to a lot of Hofstra lacrosse games. And uh, the big star at the time, I remember as a young attackman, was this guy, Chris Panos, who he wore number 42. And I was like, oh, that, you know, that's cool. You know, that's a big number. Usually guys, almost like Gretzky wears 99, right, you know, okay. like th- that type deal. So I asked for 42, and they said the highest number they had was 37. So I was like, all right, yeah, I'll take 37. Take 37. And uh, I've just stuck with it since. And it's always been kind of my, my number, my calling like calling card. And, you know, as an athlete, that's always kind of like your thing is your number. Right. You know, all, all athletes are superstitious in a way. So Yeah, I'm with you. And everyone thinks it's weird that, like, they think, like, 37 is, like, a odd number to choose. I don't know. But you know I think it's cool because it's odd. Exactly. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, I'm... I, you know, watching movies and just hearing stuff, I'm I'm a big observer of things. I see 37 like in daily things a lot. Oh, time, you know, yeah. like it will always pop up in like movies, like oh here's your change, 37 I'm cents. Sure, yeah. You know, just stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's the, the same thing. Sometimes I'm just like, am I hyper aware of it, yeah. or is it like actually <laughs> happening? All right, cool. So, um, so what made you want to become a Green Beret and go into infantry? Um, so when I I graduated from West Point. Um, and, and you're commissioned, you, you can't go into special forces until you're at least a, a captain promotable, um, so you're a first lieutenant. So they want you to have some exper- life experience and time in the Army, so you can't just do special operations straight out of the academy. So when I graduated, I, I was a second lieutenant in the infantry. Um, I went to ranger school and airborne school and did all that. And uh, I did a, a deployment as an infantry platoon leader in Iraq from 2000, 2006 to 2007, uh, for 15 months straight, it was during the surge, and uh, we were extended. So while I was there, um, I always kind of had an inkling about doing special forces. You know, it's it's the it, it's the special guys, and they're they're doing cool things. And but I, I never really got to to see them or talk to them. And while I was in Iraq, I got to work with uh, a couple different ODAs. A special forces team is called Operation Operational Detachment Alpha, so ODA. So since I was able to be attached to a couple ODAs and, and wor- work with the guys and talk to the guys and, and not just see like, oh, you know, what you guys do in the movies are cool, but more like the real life of what they do. And, you know, yes, you get to fly around in helicopters at night and, and go after bad guys and, and do that type of stuff. But there's more to it. And it's more of a thinking man's game. And, you know, it's uh, what's his name? I can't, oh, my God. I can't remember his name right now. Uh, General Donovan, who is the, the founder of the OSS uh, in World War II, which is a precursor to special forces. And, okay. uh, the CIA, and he said, uh, "I want to find a Princeton graduate that can win a bar fight." And that's that's what SF guys are. It's it's thinkers. They're they're more of the chess masters instead of like the checker masters. Okay. Where there's a lot of different things that you can do. How do you want to leverage things? How do you want to leverage people? And uh, I thought that was like you know really cool. These guys, you know, they're physical studs, but they're also like really smart. A lot of them have master's degrees, and and they're they can talk about anything, and everyone knows a second language and. Um, it, it just really appealed to me, all of it. It's cool. Um, it's almost like trying to be, I don't know, a captain in a sport or, I don't know. It's like yeah. striving to be that like extra, you know, yeah. above and beyond. Um, all right, so what was the like toughest part about the training aspect of becoming a Green Beret? Um, so the... I, there's a couple portions of the the pipeline the special forces uh, qualification course and the first part is special forces assessment and selection and 
before I went through, it was usually 21 days, and um, they when I when I went, they cut it down because they were trying to get more guys, I think, through through the pipeline and produce more green berets um, at the time, just because both both theaters were really kicking off between Iraq and Afghanistan. So they moved selection from 21 days to 14. And they also were doing it during the summer. So normally they didn't do it during, I think it was July and August down at Bragg just because it was so, so hot. Um, so they didn't want to hurt anybody. So when I went through, it was July or I forget if I went in for July or August, but it was one of the summer classes and it was 14 days and they tried to reverse cycle it. So they did everything at night to keep it cool. Um, which I think briefs very well, but in reality, I think it sucked like even more because your sleep cycle is already effed up because you're now doing everything at night during the day. When they let you sleep for a couple hours, you're in these giant tents that are just like ovens because there's no ventilation. So you're like, you know, you wake up and you're super dehydrated and then you got to go walk 16 miles with 80 pounds on your back already. Sounds horrible. So I think selection was, uh, the, the, the first kind of slap in the face and then punch to the gut when it came uh, through training. But the Q course is so long. There's so many different individual gates that you have to pass. Um, it was just a, the, the whole thing overall was definitely uh, a big mental and physical gut check. Um, you know, and, and guys that, that make it through that you, you really do earn that green beret and that, that long tab. So, I mean, that that must have felt great, but what did it feel like when you were named, you know, a captain of uh, a Green Beret captain? Well, so I was a captain going through it. Oh, that's how it works? Yeah, okay. so that's how, you know, the, the promotions go. So it wasn't that I, you graduated the course and congratulations, you're a captain. When I right. graduated, I was a captain. But, you know, along the same line, I think we were talking about to be a Green Beret detachment commander, it is kind of humbling because you get to a team, you're the fucking new guy. You're also probably, you know, four years younger than most guys on the team. And they've all had special operations deployments before. Um, you know, I think that my class graduating the Q course was a little lucky when it comes to combat experience because we all served in Iraq during the surge as, as, inf as infantry guys. So a lot of day-to-day, -day, you know, fighting. And, and we were already familiar with, with, with uh, infantry tactics and combat. And we've kind of, most of us had experienced it before where I think a lot of guys now going through the Q course may not have, probably don't have that same you know, ground combat experience when they Going get to a team. It, yeah. And then, you know, now you're on a team with a bunch of SF guys that have, you know, multiple trips to Afghanistan doing actual combat op operations. So um, it, it still was intimidating getting to a team. And I've, I I knew my place. You know, I, I wasn't going to come in there and be like, all right, motherfuckers, I'm the captain. Yeah. By the way, I went to West Point, you know, yeah. and, and pulled that card. I never, you know, I, I is didn't that say... Like a stig is does West Point like a stigma? Obviously, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of is. Like the, almost like this this uh, snobby like stigma, I guess. But, um, which is, I think it's funny because a lot of people I meet that have never worked with a West Pointer, they think that. And then, you know, they work with me or, or another one of my friends and they're like, oh, no, you guys are pretty smart common sense guys I, I wasn't expecting that from you you know like we're gonna get them lost in the woods or something like that <laughs> all right cool so when i think about war and fighting and shooting guns like it scares the crap out of me so like what strategies do they teach you or what strategies did you kind of learn on your own in order to kind of overcome that fear you know i think just like in sports it's practice and repetition and muscle memory and I remember the first time that I had bullets, you know, shot at me in anger in Iraq and, and I hear them zip them over my head. It was just natural instinct to, you know, 
three to five second buddy rush to, to drop to the ground, see and assess what was going on, move to recover and conceal position because I was kind of out in the open at the time. And I, I you know, survival instincts kind of kicked in, but it was that muscle memory of, of things that you're taught in, in training during the, you know, infantry course, during ranger school. It's just beat into you over and over again that uh, when the sound of the gun goes off, you drop and assess the situation and judge the distance and direction and, and make a decision of what you're going to do. Or are you going to, you know, move guys over here? Or are you going to, where's your support by fire going to be laid down? Um, so I think it's just like sports, uh, when it, when it comes to that. Yeah. I still think, are you still yeah. scared like, when it first happens? Or? Yeah. I mean, you're still, it, it's still an adrenaline rush and it's almost like tunnel vision. Um, you know, it's a lot different when it's training and like simulators and you're like, right. Oh, okay. There's two guys over there. We're going to walk a hundred meters. They're going to shoot at us. We're right. going to get down. When so, you really don't know. Someone's going like... to yell 12 o'clock, 200 meters. Like it's it, but to walk into a village and to hear in three different locations, like AK is getting shot at you and you have to drop and reassess what's going on. And, you know, as a leader, you're responsible for this infantry platoon. So, you have guys on the ground, you have vehicles you're responsible for, you need to make decisions like within the next five seconds. So it's, uh, I will say though, once again, like sports, once you do it a couple of times in real life, it becomes a lot easier. You kind of learn little tricks to it, you, you know, um, almost like have set plays ready uh, with other guys on your team of, you know, if, hey, if we take contact over here or, you know, and this is all kind of the, the planning process overall before you go out, you know, you leave the wire with uh, contingencies and, and wargaming everything, um, you know, you, you have something in place. Interesting. Um, all right. So can you take us through the moments that you kind of that led you up to stepping on the, the IED? I uh, like your water bottle, by the way. Oh, thank you. 37. That's yeah. So. <laughs> uh, so actually, so real quick, funny story. Um, if Coach Alper- I'll have to tell Coach Alperici to listen into this. My lacrosse, the, the lacrosse coach up at Army, uh, I called him because I, I played lacrosse for the first time after, after getting injured and, and playing on prosthetic legs this past spring in a, a tournament called Shootout for Soldiers down in Baltimore. And I, I read about that. Yeah, yeah. I played goalie. So uh, the guys at Towson gave me some equipment. And I was like, you know, it'd be cool if I could get an A and a 37 for, you know, when I played and put it on my helmet. And uh, I told Coach Alberici, and he's like, yeah, no, Ben, I'd love to help you out. I'll send it to you. And then, like, sure as shit, it comes, like, three weeks after the tournament. So <laughs> yeah. I was like, ah, thanks, Coach. So anyway, I threw it on my Nalgene bottle, and I get more use out of it now than yeah, if I just – you see it every day. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, so 15 May 2012, um, I was walking through a doorway and uh, stepped on a, a pressure plate device. This is in Afghanistan? Yeah, it was during my second deployment to Afghanistan. And uh, it took off uh, – my right leg and then my left leg was so badly broken that they had to amputate that too. And, uh, you know, I remember, I remember flying through the air and feeling concussed and it just, you know, we're talking about concussions before and that feeling of kind of like contact and, and almost hearing that like kind of crunch. It just felt like that times a thousand. And, you know, I, I had no clue. I stepped on an IED. I thought maybe a mortar had landed next to me. I thought, uh, you know, I even thought like a vehicle had like crept up behind me and hit me. Like I had no idea, but I remember going flying and, and just feeling uh, that that contact, and then um, like sensing and smelling that that explosion smell, and uh, kind of coming in and out. I remember uh, just dirt and dust kind of settling all around me. My head was just ringing like never before. Both my eardrums got blown out. Um, Do you have a hard time hearing now, or? You know, so my right one healed on its own. My left one, there was still a little perforation, so they did surgery and, and paved over it, and uh, it, it's fine. I, I have tinnitus anyway, but I was probably going to have that from 
from just <laughs> years of shooting, shooting and, and guns, bombs, yeah. you know, and too many booms. Um, so yeah, so I remember uh, kind of being in and out. I remember hearing somebody screaming uh, next to me, and I, I remember thinking, well, when they hear him, like someone's gonna come and find me too. So like, all I gotta do is just stay with it, like just stay conscious. And uh, it turns out it was actually me screaming. It was, I guess, I want to call it out of body without getting like in a religious mode. You know what I mean? Like it, right. it just didn't feel like me. I, I don't remember screaming. I remember hearing somebody else yelling. And then uh, I remember just thinking, like, stay with it, stay with it. And I just – I felt like I was kind of slipping away. And I remember kind of in a, a moment of clarity thinking uh, about uh, – there was a picture that I had of my wife, Gina, and my son, Peyton. And I just – like, it popped in my head. And it was, like, my focus. And it kind of, like, brought me back to a little bit. And I remember just saying their names over and over again, Peyton and Gina, Peyton and Gina. To and that kind of, kept you there. Yeah, to, to, to kind of keep me with it. And uh, then I remember someone like kind of hovering over me and hearing him yell like, holy shit, holy shit. And uh, that's what I, I couldn't see him, but I, I felt everything. And I, I was like, all right, like I can kind of like let go. And, you know, staying conscious like that, I always say it's it's like it felt almost like if you ever go into water and hold your breath mm-hmm. and then you're like, all right, I got to like I, I got to pop up and take a breath. Um, it feels like the exact opposite where it just felt like, all right, I, like, I just, I got to let go. Like, I, I got to shut my eyes now. And I remember saying out loud, sorry, Gina, my wife's name. And, and that was it, like blackness. And, uh, I woke up three days later in, uh, in Germany. So what happened then when you got in Germany? So- yeah. In Germany, I woke up, um, like, so when I got medevac to the trauma center, um, they said I was a responsive. I don't remember anything. Um, they, I got intubated and sedated right away. Uh, they ended up pumping 75 units of blood back into me. Uh, Is that like a record too? No, I mean, I know of other guys <laughs> that got like a hundred, but, um, you know, just from the, the trauma and obviously the legs and, um, so much, I lost so much blood. They, so they stopped even caring if it was my blood type. It's called battle buddy blood. So they just kind of tapped anybody in the, in the trauma center and did a direct, uh, transfusion. So, and you know, three month every, in three month intervals after that, I had to get tested for like blood diseases and stuff just because they, you know, they wanted to keep yeah, my, they didn't test it, yeah. yeah. So, um, so they, they intubate and sedate me, amputate me right there and kind of close me up and stabilize me. And uh, I, get sent, I get flown from Kandahar to Bath to, to Bagram Airfield. Um, and then they flew me from Bagram to Germany. And when I woke up in Germany, it was three days after the, uh, after the accident, stepping on the bomb. And I remember they said that they, they were trying to wake me because they wanted me to be conscious at least before the, the, the flight back to the States. Um, but I, I had a really bad fever. Any, any reason or? I think just, they want me breathing on my own. They didn't want me on a respirator while I was on the flight. Cause God forbid, if anything happens, oh, I, right. I guess, I guess, you know, probability wise of something bad happening on a respirator compared to you breathing on your own. And then, uh, I had a really bad fever. I had a, at one point I had a fever of 106 while I was unconscious cause uh, my body was fighting off the different fungal and bacterial infections from the, the dirt blown up into me in the yeah. blast, too. So I guess they tried waking me up a couple times, but I was very aggressive in fighting them. And the third time, kind of like the last time that they were going to try and wake me up and uh, take me off the, the respirator and everything, um, I, I just kind of came to. And I don't remember. It, it felt like all my five senses had been reset. I had no clue where I was. All I knew was that I was extremely thirsty because even while I was sedated, it was like a dream state where I couldn't wake myself up. And I was really starting to flip out about, um, you know, wh- what had happened, where I am. I remember screaming in my head, like, please, God, let me wake up. I, I Please let me get something to drink. I was just dying of thirst. And um, I wake up 
and the I can't see anything, but I feel a nurse next to me, and you know tubes coming out of me. My hands are all broken. Everything's kind of you know bandaged up, and uh, the nurse says, you know, Captain Harrow, do you know where you are? And I, I said no. She said, uh, you're in Launchville, Germany. So right away, I, I realized that everything I was kind of like figuring out, something bad had happened. And she said, do you, do you know what happened? And I said, no. She said, I'm, uh, you stepped in an IED. So I asked, you know, did I, um, did I lose a leg thinking I probably just lost like my, my ankle, like up to my ankle or something like that. And she's like, I'm sorry, but you lost both your legs uh, above the knee. So I was quiet for a second. I go, okay, do I still have my dick? And she's like, yes, you still have your penis. And I was like, all right, you know, okay. Like, what, what do I have my arms? Like, I'm starting to go down. I can't see anything. Go down the list, right? Yeah, so I'm like, she's like, yeah, you know, you have both your arms. Um, you know, I'm sorry, but you lost two fingers on your right hand. And um, you also suffered significant soft tissue damage on your, on your forearm. But the doctors are going to be able to save your arm. And I was like, all right, you know, half fingers, but I still got my dick, right? And, and like double checking. And she's like, yes, you still have that. And I was like, all right. And then uh, I, I passed back out. And then really that's the only conversation I remember in Germany. Um, I do remember at the time I still had a, my like Afghan beard. And my wife Gina always hated uh, – like when before deployment, you had to grow it out. And she hated how scratchy and scruffy my beard would get. Why did you have to grow a beard? Uh, so with our mission, you're living amongst the populace. So to keep low visibility – and to, to fit in with a population, and it's a cultural thing over there, too, where all the men have beards. Okay. Um, all the special forces guys grow beards and, and wear beards. Um, so I remember asking them to shave me, uh, and I remember, like, some nurse or whoever was, like, shaving me just because I thought if Gina's going to see me, like, all fucked up without legs. She doesn't want to see the beard. At, at least she won't <laughs> see me with a beard. So those are really the only, like, two significant things I remember in Germany. Um, did, you, did you think about what she was thinking or – no, you know, I was so doped up at the time, and it was still kind of like this crazy nightmarish dream state of like figuring out, like coming in and out of it, waking up and like remembering uh, like what just happened, and then being in pain. And I just remember being super thirsty from all the narcotics they were giving me at the time, and just like I was throwing up. Like they'd give me water, I'd throw up the water because I didn't have anything in my. You know, you drink a lot of water and not eat, it, right. and it was just kind of a vicious cycle. Um, yeah, so it was. Kind of crazy. So fast forward, I guess you you you're back in the United States and you have to start your rehab process again. Yeah, I'm sure. You're still in a ton of pain. You're on a lot of pain medicine. So like, what was your first kind of like thoughts and feelings and emotions when you started that rehab process? And I know uh, I read that you went cold turkey off the pain meds. Can you, so you can yeah. can you kind of take us through that process? So they told my wife I was supposed to do like four to six months inpatient. Uh, That's kind of like the usual schematics when it guys with these injuries uh get sent to walter reed and i i actually ended up only spending about a little under two months inpatient uh and part of that i think is because i took myself voluntarily off all my pain meds um you know week three or four after they they were able to f stop all the the infections and really close me up and let me heal um i was on I was on ketamine. I was on two types of oxy. I was on a morph, like there was a morphine paddle hooked up to me um, to wean me off the ketamine. They put me on uh, methadone, you know, which they give to heroin addicts to wean them off heroin. So kind of in a, a moment of clarity in between all the drugs, I just, I knew I wanted to, I didn't feel like myself and I just wanted to, to feel like myself and, and deal with this clear headed than all foggy because I, you know, on pain meds, 
especially with ketamine, it's such a strong disassociate. I knew I was in pain, but I didn't really know, you know, I didn't know where I was. At one point, I remember somebody, Gina told me I told one of my friends I was Batman. Um, I was calling in airstrikes, uh, (laughs) like, on payment. It was crazy. So on week, like, three or four, I just, I stopped taking, you know, I stopped touching the morphine paddle. Um, the nurse would come in with like my, my hourly or, you know, every eight hours she'd come in with, uh, oxy and I said, nah, I'm all right. I don't need it. And, uh, after the first 24 hours, the doctors came in and said, you know, Captain Harrow, you, you feeling all right? And I was like, nah, look, I'm still in pain. Um, they're like, yeah, how come you're not taking your pain meds? I was like, look, I don't want to take any more pain meds. I was like, you could unhook the morphine right now. I'm fine. I'll, I'll deal with it myself. And they're like, look, don't be the overly macho green beret. If you need it, take it. And I was like, look, I, I get it. I understand why there's pain management, you know, lower the heart rate to help healing. But I, I want to kind of get ahead of the game. And I, I want to stop pumping poison in my body. Like, I, I just don't feel right. And uh, like, look, you can, we can't make you take the pain meds, but at least let's leave you hooked up to the morphine for the next couple of days. So I was like, all right. And uh, so the next couple of days, you know, I refused all my narcotics, um, didn't touch the morphine paddle, but it was just crazy pain where I would just have these like kind of shooting bursts of, uh, I feel, almost feel like fire and my, my legs, you know, being kind of, uh, almost grabbed by like hot metal hands and just crushed. And it really, what it is, is my, my brain freaking out where it's sending a signal down to where my legs are supposed to be not getting that return signal. And in, in turn, it just feels like pain because it's my, my nervous system freaking out. And, uh, you know, at night, my wife, Gina, she spent every night, uh, in, in the hospital room with me, she would spend like late at night when it was really bad. She, she tapped the end of my stumps to try and confuse my brain to focus on the tapping sensation instead of like figuring out where my feet were. Um, or she like rubbed my head or just trying to like keep me occupied some other way, like talking to me. And after, honestly, after those couple of days of just really sucking through the pain, I was able to kind of break through a plateau and uh, I didn't need the payments anymore. It's just like, all right, um, I feel fine. Right. And then did like your brain kind of figure out that? Yeah, it was just it your, just the rest of your legs it, weren't there. Anymore, it like or? yeah, it just calmed down. It was just like, all right, this is this is new normal. Right. These are the new signals, and uh, so yeah, I think that helped me with the recovery and and get me you know back just you know starting where I needed to be. Uh, you know, when I got injured, I was. I would say I was a I was a 215 pound tactical athlete. You know, you're not doing too much cardio in Afghanistan unless you're like running around on the objective. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so I was a lot a lot more weight room stuff. And uh, when I left inpatient, I was about 135 pounds, like soaking wet. And it was just when I say starting from scratch, I hadn't been 135 pounds since sophomore year of high school. Plus, my right arm was so banged up that I had no range of motion Perfect. in it. You know, I still had kind of pins in my hands because both my hands got broken from the blast, um, just really banged up. So it was, it wasn't starting from zero. We're starting from like negative 100. Right. I mean, I feel like I've been there too. After my injury, I lost a ton of weight too. Um, and it, it's a, a dark point in time. Yeah. So what was like your lowest moment and how did you kind of get get through that during the, the recovery process? You know, I think that my training as a, as a Green Beret and even my time as a, a college athlete and a high school, just an athlete overall, you know, having to deal with tough times um, and kind of deal with the suck, that's just something, you know, as a profession, that's something that they look for during selection that, you know, are you cold and tired and hungry, 
but will you continue to keep putting left foot in front of right foot and, and driving on? And even though, you know, I didn't have left foot and right foot anymore, I knew that my new job was to, to rehab and to get better. And, you know, I had a son and a wife and I needed to, to, to figure out new normal and, it, it sucked and I, it just, it was like anything else I did as an SF guy. I just kind of put my head down and took a deep breath and, and, and carried on, you know, whatever it was. Um, a lot of adapting to new things, obviously, you know, cardio wise, I wasn't running around the first couple of months I was in like this Dr. Evil electric wheelchair and that was horrible, you know, to be, you know, almost I, I, I guess I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but the ego part of it of, you know, being this badass walking around and now I'm like, you know, this, this broken torso in an electric wheelchair, um, it does, it, it's tough on the psyche, I guess, but for sure. I mean, I, I just knew, I knew my goal. I knew what I had to do to get there and, uh, I, nothing was, was stopping me. And it was the same thing with the, the, the limb lengthening. I, I don't know if you were going to ask yeah, about I that, ask too. You that next. Yeah. yeah. So you want me to jump into that? Go for yeah, it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I got injured in May of 2012. Um, that summer I got out and, and during, during the beginning of the fall, I started to work out again. I was, you know, getting back in shape. I even, you know, went out and, and played sled hockey for the first time and tried that and just figuring out what new normal would be. And, uh, at the same time, I really wasn't having, having any success when it came to prosthetics. And I really wanted to be up and walking again, even if it was, you know, like slow and, and, and I know I'm not going to be running around, but at least to be wearing them, you know, in the house or just, you know, s small stuff. I, I get it. But I, nothing would stay on my right leg because so much of my right leg got taken off in the blast and, and cut away just because the infection kept working its way at my femur. I was so short that I couldn't wear, you know, these, these full-size prosthetics I'm wearing now. And uh, I even had to wear this kind of cumbersome belt that was, like, super uncomfortable. To, like, keep them to, on? Just, or... to, just to keep the suction on. So how, how my uh, system works is it's a, a vacuum seal where underneath my, uh, my socket is a liner and there's a ring around it. And then as I put on my socket, I push this uh, white valve. I know we're doing a podcast and they can't see, but I'm, I'm trying to do the best here. I'll take a picture later. Okay. Or something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you push this white release button and, and it, it pushes out all the air. So that's how it stay on is a vacuum seal. Okay. Um, and so there wasn't even enough leverage on my right side to, to hold it. Um, so it was just very frustrating. And I remember being down in uh, Florida. I was at my in-laws for Thanksgiving uh, in 2012. We went down there, and I'm, I brought my little legs. I was, you know, trying to walk around on it and work on my core strength and stability. And uh, I was just getting super frustrated and, and talking to my wife about it. And and she suggested, you know, maybe there's can't they just grow uh, like your leg like a little bit? And I was like, Gina, I was like, if they if they could do that, I'm sure they would have done that. Right. And uh, you know, with her kind of like impetus, I I started doing my own research. And reading like amputee forums and stuff on orthopedic surgery and limb lengthening and if that's even a thing. And uh, I discovered a process called osseodistraction where women in Russia and China pay to, pay to get their shin bones broken. And then they stretch out the break and gain a couple inches of height so that way they can be taller to be models. And I was like, wow, if they can do that to a, a tip and a fib, why not a femur? So I took that idea back to the doctors at Walter Reed. And I was like, hey, do you guys know about this process? Do you do it? And uh, they said, you know, we've never done a, a stump lengthening like that. We, uh, you know, we know about the process and we use it to correct major traumatic breaks and uh, like compound fractures. Um, 
but they got me in touch with a doctor at Johns Hopkins. So I, we go up and meet the guy at Johns Hopkins. He's the American guru of uh, external fixators and, and limb lengthening. And he tells me, yeah, I can definitely get you like two to three inches of bone. I've done an amputee before. Um, he's had great, you know, pretty good results. Um, but just give you a heads up. You're going to be on antibiotics the entire time because you're going to have metal half in you, half out. And, you know, you're, you can't get, you're going to be kind of down for eight months. And for me, that was just like, kind of heartbreaking because you I, make progress exactly like you got to go back I, I, it's like going through ranger school and then getting day, and like volunteering to day one yourself through ranger school and i was like look i'll i'll do it but is there anything else you know out there like i'm you know just asking he's like well there's this guy i know up in minnesota that uses his non-fda approved device and it's all internal and that way you know you don't have to worry about the as much as the infection part and you're probably you know you can't be doing a lot but you could do some stuff and I was like, all right, like, please get me in touch with them. So a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from Dr. Dahl, the doc up in Minnesota, and uh, introduces himself. And he says, Ben, you know, I saw your x-rays. Um, I can, uh, looking at the x-rays, you know, I could probably get you about two inches of length. Um, I, I got to see you firsthand to really judge, like, how much soft tissue. So we scheduled a time for me to come up there and we'll do the surgery. And um, went up there. Um, uh, that was July 29th, 2013, I believe. Um, went up to Minnesota, did the surgery and how it works is, uh, they, they drill a cavity into the end of your femur, they break your femur. And then in that cavity that they just created, they, they insert a device that looks like two AA batteries stacked on top of one another. And then on either side of the break, uh, they, they screw that the device attach it to your femur on the inside. And then through my hip was a wire connected to a radio receiver that's about the size of a quarter buried underneath my skin. So all internal. So four times a day, I took a radio transmitter, uh, stuck it over the receiver on my hip, uh, flipped on the, the this like shoebox size uh, radio transmitter device, and I wore a stethoscope and I listened to all the screws turn, counted the screws um, every time I turned it on to make sure we were lengthening at the right you know uh, rate, and did that for about 11 months. Uh, one minor setback, two, two or three surgery, uh, three surgeries total. I ended up setting two medical world records: one for the shortest uh, femur ever lengthened, and the other was for the most most bone regenerated. So instead of regrowing two to three inches, I ended up growing six and a half inches of leg back. And it's great that I got myself up and walking, but now it's an actual process that they do for guys at Walter Reed, where they don't have to figure it out on their own. You know, I was well, patient zero. Exactly. Yeah. I, I was patient zero. I made myself patient zero. So there's actually two guys on my sled hockey team that uh, same deal. They're, you know, one side was shorter than the other. So they went through the lengthening process and they're both up and walking now too. Awesome. That's crazy. And I'm sure that had to, it had to have hurt a ton doing it or did it not really? You know, everyone asked me that. It's kind of uh, it sounds act, act, horrible. It, it does sound horrible. <laughs> but to be honest, um, it, I guess it's all relative once you get your legs blown off because yeah. I, it's all about your frame of reference. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I had a broken femur for about eleven months, and we're we're lengthening the break. It honestly, it got it a little. It was bad. like a little achy, but it really wasn't that bad. Yeah. All right. So, I don't I don't wish it upon anyone, but it still it wasn't that bad. So athletes out there <laughs> yeah. who, who get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it makes everything else easier going forward. Um, all right. So you want to talk about playing sled hockey and what that's kind of done for you i'm sure you because you go from being an athlete at west point being a green beret running around and i know we talked about this when we first met in the, yeah. the hotel lobby about your workout and stuff and like how do you 
you know, get your heart rate up. And I, I hurt my knee like in January or whatever. I had knee surgery. Yeah. And even that, like, it's hard to sweat. It's hard to like do that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So. No, definitely. So, so first off, um, trying to figure out how to do, you know, just cardio again. Obviously, a lot of hand cycle stuff. Um, I bought an elevation training mask, so now I look like one of those guys that you probably make fun of in the gym, rolling around with an it elevation you, training it mask. Helps to get your heart rate up. And yeah, stuff, it definitely gets your heart rate up just because it, it it restricts your breathing, so it, it is a lot tougher. So I'll do different workouts with that just to change it up sometimes. So I'll do you know just like twenty or thirty minutes with like just just straight push ups and sit ups like nonstop wearing that mask, and it definitely gets your heart rate up. Um, I'll swim, uh, hand cycle. But definitely sled hockey is great uh, for for cardio for me and, and playing hockey. You know, so hockey was my first kind of first true love of sport, and I grew up uh, playing it. You know, that was like my first major sport. Uh, when I was five, I started skating, and I started playing goalie when I was a little guy, and I really liked it. Um, but for a kid playing goalie at five, every year the parents got to buy him new leg pads, and my parents were like, "Look." You're now a right winger. Like we're not paying for leg pads every year, so uh, I stopped playing goalie. So to be able to do something that I loved growing up has been great for me physically and mentally. You know, I always say hockey's the one thing that I feel is the same uh, for me with legs and without. You know, you walk into a hockey rink, every hockey rink smells like a hockey rink. Yeah, it's still five on five. It's still the same sheet of ice. The goal is still four by six. It's still the same rules. Obviously, it's a sled. And for me as a goalie, I'm not making kick save left and right. But it's already like I flopped and I'm just catcher blocker, catcher blocker. Um, and it, I still can be competitive and, and athletic. So um, it, it really does. It really has helped me a lot in, in my recovery physically and mentally. And uh, I still just enjoy it and uh, it's great. And now, you know, my, my son just started playing hockey. So I get to get out on the ice and, uh, and help coach him. And, uh, I skate around in a sled with like all the little guys. So it, it's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, keeping, yeah, keeping it going, you know, no matter what it is, you know, if you do something competitive still and still gets you excited and yeah, you know, I, I kind of worry what it's going to be next. I'll probably, my competitiveness, I'll probably be one of those parents where I'm, I'm living vicariously, unfortunately, through my, my, my son like and my daughter. does it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why else have kids, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> Carry on the tradition. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're going to start wrapping things up. Uh, where can people find you on social media or do you not want people to find you on social media? No, definitely. Um, I do have a Facebook page. It's, uh, it's Conrad Harrow uh, on Facebook, but I, to be honest, I, I hardly ever go on Facebook. I'm more of an Instagram guy. Love Instagram. My yeah. philosophy is like, I, I this way I don't have to thumb through like a thousand different like political views and like other things I'm not really interested in. But I can see, oh, there's my friend in, Pictures, yeah. yeah, there's my friend in, in Budapest. He's in Hungary. Oh, that's amazing. And then, oh, that's my friend. Oh, their daughter is really growing up. Cool. Um, so I'm more of an Instagram guy. It's uh, B Harrow 37 on Instagram. Tree Sev. Yeah. <laughs> All right. These are my, my final questions. Sure. So what would you say to a parent who uh, won't let their kids play sports such as football because it's too dangerous? Um, you know, I think that football... You have a son, so... Yeah. You know what? So to be honest, I'll tell you, I'll tell you honestly, I, I wouldn't want Peyton to play football until... And my dad was the same way uh, until... I was older, you know, I, I wanted to play Pop Warner and I thought that was so cool. I love, you know, 85 Bears was the first sports team I ever saw and I was a huge Walter Payton fan. And uh, I, you know, I played two-hand touch football whenever I could. Um, 
my dad didn't want me to play contact sports until I could check in hockey, and I was kind of older, and you know, when I was like 14 years old. But he was ahead of the times. Yeah, I know it's pretty impressive. Um, you know, I I would be the same way with Peyton, and and just teach him there's a proper way to hit. Uh, obviously the mouthpiece is a huge part of avoiding concussions and making sure you're wearing a mouthpiece and heads up and it's debatable. But yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, I would rather, to be honest, I would rather pay and play a contact sport, uh, like lacrosse or, or hockey where I feel like the contact is a little different. Yeah, you're probably going to, it's not the point of the game. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> where it's like, you know, hit each other, get up, hit each other, get up. Um, yeah. But I mean, with that said, I am a huge. I, I do love watching football, and it is it, it is tougher. I do think though that you know nowadays there's so many concussion rules where it is a known thing. You know, a lot of guys in the NFL that are having issues because what they were doing 20 years ago. I don't think that 20 years from now you'll have the same issues because the NFL is so aware of it and, and the checks and balances that are kind of put in place. Yeah, I agree. I think like kids, or I call myself a kid. Yeah, uh, I'm 26, so I feel <laughs> like when when people my age are starting to coach their kids, I feel like it'll start to change at that point in time. Because that was right around the time when people started talking about concussions and yeah. went away from, like, the, you know, got your bell rung, stuff, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you watch games now, you watch a hard hit, and most of the time I feel like you'll see a flag thrown on the play for, like, targeting or unsportsmanlike conduct yeah. or a high hit. And I think it's just kind of – it will eventually work its way out of the game where you you won't see as many just crushing blows. Right. Um, so what, what's the most important lesson that you learned at West Point? The most important lesson I learned at West Point would be that, that hard work does pay off. And, uh, you know, I learned that I, that's a lesson that I learned, you know, if you're able to persevere, um, I remember the conditioning sessions, uh, up at Mikey stadium, you know, late in the evening and in, uh, during like January and February, it was dark out and cold and wet and snowing. And we'd see all the other cadets like coming back from dinner or coming back from like a long weekend, and we would be out on the field just doing sprints and conditioning drills. But that hard work paid off. Where, you know, we were we were a top ten team my junior year and, and, and senior year, and we were super competitive and uh, had had every opportunity to to try and win a national championship. And that's just a lesson on, that I took later on in life. You know, in in the military as an SF guy, and especially trying to figure out how to walk again and, and, and figure out how to how to get up on legs that it, it it takes hard work. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Exactly. Uh, what's the most important lesson that you learned uh, from being a Green Beret? Adaptability, where you could be walking into a room and think that you're meeting with somebody and it, it could be this kind of peaceful meeting and it can turn 180 degrees and turn into a gunfight just a, in a snap. Do you have an example of that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a cool story. You know, there is, I there were actually several meetings and uh, meets that I had in in Afghanistan where I thought it was actually going to turn into this, you know, Western style shootout, and, and thank God it didn't, and cooler heads prevailed. Um, but uh, that feeling of flipping your weapon from safe to fire because you think you're about to put rounds into a guy that's like two feet from you, it's just it is a little uh, unnerving. Um, but to yeah. say the least. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine. Um, all right. So what are the most important lessons that you learned about yourself from your injury or injuries? I, I learned that as mentally tough as I, I thought I was, and I, I thought I, I was a pretty mentally tough guy, it's, I, I can go to another level. And that's something that, honestly, I wish I, I figured that out about myself as an athlete too. I, 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 looking back, I, I, I 
I, I think that there's a lot more I probably could have done, succeeded, you know, on the athletic field. Um, if maybe I was mentally stronger at the time, um, you know, going through the special forces course and, and being an SF guy, you know, there's a lot of tough things that you got to do and, and being able to push through that mentally, you know, you, I feel it's like you, you break through a plateau and you're like, Oh my God, this, this is easy now. And, uh, especially now being injured, you know, learning how to walk again, especially on a, you know, we were talking about, I just changed up the knees I was walking on and I was walking around pretty good for a year, changed them up and it was just starting from scratch again. But I know in the end, this is kind of these knees are, are what I need. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a mental game, you know, it's just one foot in front of the other. Awesome. Uh, what three things are you most grateful for? Uh, Gina, Peyton, and Marquesa. Your kids and your wife. Yep. All right, perfect. And last question, what's your personal definition of perseverance? My personal definition of perseverance is, is going through hard times, being able to put your head down and lower your shoulder and, and just follow through and, and know that you're going to come out on the other end on top. Just like all your training and stuff, you like you said, one foot one foot in front of the other. Yeah, you know, honestly, I say I I do know I say that a lot. That was actually one of the best pieces of advice I got uh, before I started Ranger School you know, as a young second infantry second lieutenant. You know, Ranger School is like this big crucible, and you know, if you don't have your Ranger tab, that that's pretty much a career killer later on. And uh, it's uh, just a huge it's just a huge suck fest. It's uh, 72 days and uh, three phases and just and tough and you know lack of sleep, lack of food, constant operations. Um, you know I ended up losing about 30 pounds during the entire thing. Um, and I remember talking to another West Point guy that that was uh, graduated from the academy two a year or two ahead of me, but he I, I knew him just through the athletic program and he said, hey, it's just one foot in front of the other. Just remember that. And, you know, so many times I remember walking around with a, like, 90-pound ruck on my back through uh, Dahlonega, Georgia, uh, up in the mountains of Georgia, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, just so tired and so cold and just thinking, like, all I got to do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, eventually, like, this, we'll be able to go to sleep, but just for right now, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Awesome. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview. Yeah, thanks for... And uh, your story's awesome, and I feel like we were best friends from the, the, the moment I met you, yeah. only because 37, <laughs> I'm like, we, we have that connection. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on the podcast and everything. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yep.